Heavenly Father, we're so grateful we can come together on this day and rest in you and be renewed by your word, which reminds us that you are with us no matter what. And as we look at this passage this day, for some of us, perhaps for the very first time, that we would recognize your amazing grace and, Lord, walk in it. Take our minds now, think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Which one of us at one time or another or ten times in our studies was in a class of some kind and thought to themselves, I am never going to use this. Ever, right? You know what I'm talking about. For example, calculus. I'm a PE major. I'm in calculus class. So from late August to mid-October, that was my attitude. I'm never going to use this. This is stupid. I can't believe it. I'm so done with this. I got better things to do. Guess what my grade was at midterm? F. A big fat F. I'm like, I'm in trouble. All right. I, I better do something here. So I went to my dad and my mom. And I said, I need hip. And they said, okay, we'll get you a tutor. So I went to the George Mason University tutorial service where they assigned me a totally deaf tutor. <laughs> and so I'm, you know, I didn't say anything. Of course, that would have been rude. But I'm like, dear God, how is this going to work? The guy was amazing. He read my lips. He had all kinds of resources for me and drill work to do. And he put me to work. He was a taskmaster. He was my age. And he says, uh-uh, do it again. And I, every, for an hour every week beyond class, I would meet with John, my tutor, pay him 10 bucks an hour back in 1984, whatever the date was, somewhere around there. I aced every exam from that point on and got a B in the course. And I said, the teacher said, that was a miracle, Gene. Congratulations. I go, yeah, it was. You will never see me again. <laughs> what is calculus? Paul is answering that exact question for the Roman church. This mixed bag of Jews and Gentiles, just like we're a mixed bag here at Christ Church West Shore. Because there, a natural question coming off of chapter 4 is, what benefit is this? What does it really matter? You've given us all this theology, Paul, but does it make a difference in my daily walk with Christ at all? We were last here a couple years ago. Last year we were going through the lectionary with Luke. And so we took a year off, but we will be doing Romans and Epiphany every year now until, like I said, the Lord takes me home. Just a couple chapters every year, just to keep us in the gospel of Paul, if you will. Because Paul is interpreting for us the great truths of God's amazing grace for us. He began in chapter 1, where we were two years ago, three years ago rather, 
where he reminded the Roman church that I am not ashamed of the gospel for is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then for the Greek. Meaning everybody. This good news is for everybody. And because of that, the righteousness, and he uses that word, righteousness simply means in a right standing before a holy God. Right? That this righteousness that we have is revealed from faith, for faith, those who by faith are righteous shall live. Romans 1.18. And so he then turns the argument to the Romans and reminds them, don't walk in the ways you used to walk. And then he describes a whole bunch of behaviors for the rest of the chapter which describe American culture. All right? So this, this, is not, this is really, we've come full circle, folks. All right? That's who you were. Now in Christ, walk in the light of that. So he turns to chapter 2 and begins to talk to the Jewish believers in Rome. Because they're thinking, yeah, we've got it. We got this. You know, we've been circumcised. We're children of Abraham. And he reminds them that nobody is without an excuse. Everybody is deserving of judgment, even if you are religious. And we were reminded a few years back that even if you have been baptized, even if you have been confirmed, even if you've been coming, even if you come every Sunday, if that's what we're placarding up before the Lord, we're missing the whole point. That circumcision of the heart is what truly matters. It's not the outward expressions of our religion. It's, it's our hearts being circumcised. Which means when our pleasures in the faith match up with our duty and our obedience and our desires to walk with him, you know your heart's been circumcised. So then he turns to the great uh, chapter 3 where God's righteousness has been revealed in Jesus Christ. There's in verse 10, no one is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned, verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God. And reminds us that this righteousness of God has revealed through the faith. And he gives us the great chapter 4 where the greatest person of faith is Abraham. The father of the nations. That Abraham was justified not by his works, but it was, he believed in God and it was counted to him as righteous. By his faith alone. And through that faith, Abraham and all his descendants, who by faith walk with the Lord, are justified. So he ends up chapter 4 with these great words in verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 1. You with me now? See what Paul's done? He's laying out this great argument of salvation by faith in Christ alone and all the various aspects of it for the Roman church because he's anticipating the question, I'm never going to use this, so what? What does it benefit me? Well, Paul is making the point, it makes all the difference in the world. Therefore, since we're justified, the first point is there's three elements of that justification. First, verse 1, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, Paul is saying we have peace with God. It's not the peace of God. That's a benefit too. We've all experienced that subjective peace of God when you turn your life over to the Lord. But it's not the eagle's peaceful, easy feeling. All right? As nice as that is and warm as that is, despite, you know, a calm and quiet heart in the midst of hardship, that's all subjective. Paul is talking about the objective reality of peace with God that declare that our hostility with God is over. We're no longer enemies, no matter what my circumstances are. I have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Because the reality was there was a time in our lives that we weren't at peace with God. We might have not recognized it, but we were literally enemies of God because we were claiming the kingly rule. And therefore, God has a problem with us. Paul describes that problem as his wrath. And when you hear the biblical word wrath, it's not what American culture thinks is some heavenly conniption fit. All right? It's his personal, subtle, controlled hostility toward all that is wrong with the world. Therefore, a debt that I'm carrying that I can't get rid of is what I am carrying because I don't believe it. But when I do believe it, it's taken away. And this peace that I have, I can't achieve on my own effort. It's all been done with Christ. We have it because we trust in him and him alone. Therefore, you are at peace with God. And because you're at peace with God, you have access to God. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So many people treat the Lord in their relationship with the Lord as an employer-employee. You knock on the boss's door. Excuse me, sir, you got a minute? You have access to the king of the universe because you're his beloved child. You don't have to knock on the door. You just go to your heavenly father through the blood of Jesus Christ. You have access into this grace, this unmerited favor. You're, you are in the unmerited favor because of Jesus Christ. You can go to him 24 hours, seven days a week because of his great love for you. And when we do that, we have great hope. We re- and we rejoice, the second half of verse 2, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice because it's the more peace with God we have, the more access we have, to this grace, we're more desirous to see him face to face. It's our future. That desire is the future of the hope of the glory we already possess. And notice, all three of these elements are past, present, and future. Because we trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we have peace with God. Because we have peace with God, we have access in the present. And because of we have access in the present, our future is going to get even better when we see him face to face. And it will be glorious. My friends, Paul is saying that this, this rejoicing, this justification by faith makes all the difference in the world. That's the first point. Is that our justification brings great peace, access, and hope.
Why? Because life is hard. And he gives us joy within our suffering. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This is not a rejoicing for our sufferings. That would be masochistic. Because I've known some Christians who would say, well, I deserve this punishment because of, of my underachievement in the faith. I, re, I deserve it. I've also known some people who develop a superior attitude because they've been going through suffering and they look down upon people who've had it easier than they have. And they see other people who've had it easier as shallow or ungrateful for all that the Lord has done. Neither of those are helpful and both are masochistic. You know, it's also possible to suffer as a work. You can say, boy, I've been really suffering a lot. God really owes me now. No. People like that become proud and cynical. But a Christian rejoices in the suffering, not for the suffering. Because there's no joy in the suffering itself. Ask anybody who's going through it. God hates the pain as much as we do. And the Christian knows that. And so the trials that we endure will result in benefits, a threefold benefit Paul mentions. And the Christian looks through these sufferings into these certainties. And we rest in these certainties of what? First, perseverance. And they all build on each other. You can't have the other two without the first one. First, you have to be a persevering person. In other words, a single-mindedness, a focus. God is real. God's love is real. And this makes all the difference. Because all of a sudden, you know, when you get sick, the other things of this life really don't matter, right? Talk to anybody who's been through it. You start to realize what ultimate grace and truth really means. And you persevere. There's a single-mindedness. That occurs in that person. Secondly, it produces character. Character is just another word for testedness. And as you go through these trials, a poise is created. It doesn't, it doesn't throw you off. You've been here before. You know what it's like. You're, you're the calm in the midst of the storm. And therefore, that character produces a person of integrity. A person who's teachable, a person who's self-disciplined, a person who's compassionate towards others, a person who possesses a servant's heart toward others, a person who's courageous, faithful, joyful, and winsome regardless of their surroundings. That's perseverance. That's character. And so when we got our perseverance and our character, this suffering and joy also produces hope again. <laughs> we have hope again. This is an even stronger assurance in one piece, access, and future glory. That our suffering removes all the idols of our lives that ultimately fail us. That we tend to 
put our trust in things which really don't matter. They're good things, but we make them ultimate things, and they'll fail us. But when you have this kind of hope, you start to discover that my hope is in Christ alone and above all. It drives us to the one place where we find real peace, assurance, and hope and access. Let's pause for a second. Let's ask ourselves this question. Just your justification before God. Is it based on your works or Christ's work? And has that led you to this single-mindedness, this perseverance, this endurance and character, and this kind of hope? Has it produced a maturity in you? Are you less anxious than before? Less jittery? Less fearful? Confident because of who you are in Christ? Did it lead you to a greater experience of God's presence? If not, why not? Was it a failure of your will? A failure of discipleship? Or just simple disobedience? How about a failure to grasp the good news of the gospel? When life hits us, my friends, and it will, that's what Paul's trying to say. It will hit us. The speed with which we turn to grasp the gospel and rest in the reality of God's amazing grace is an indication of how well you understand your justification. That you are just before God, not based on my works, but on Jesus' alone. And when I get that bad news... I can look at that cross and settle once and for all. You love me, Lord Jesus. That tells me so. The speed to which we do that is an indication of how well we understand our justification. And God can use suffering in our lives. Sometimes he brings suffering in our lives to awaken us. Sometimes he uses it to bring an intervention. So Paul continues in the, after those two great points, anticipating the question, so how do I know it's true? I mean, great, I'm going to suffer. Yay, I'll sign up for that, right? How do I know it's real? Well, verse 5, he gives us a subjective reason. And in verse 6, he gives us an objective reason. Verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Every Christian has some inner experience of God's love for them. It can be overwhelmingly strong or it can be mild and gentle, which quite frankly is more common. But we experience that greater inner experience of love and as we do so, we have a greater assurance Generally, the people who experience this are those who have spent a lot of time in the Word of God and in prayer and in meditating on the Word of God. Why do you think I push on that so hard? 
because I know I've experienced this peace and hope and joy and perseverance because God's love has been poured into my heart by the Holy Spirit who's been given to me. It's like when Daniel received the word from the Lord, oh man, greatly loved. Or Mary Magdalene on Easter morning who's distraught Wondering, what are we going to do? Someone's stolen the body. And he hears Jesus' voice, Mary. That was only Mary's experience, my friends. What a blessing for her. No, my friends, it is a subjective because God has poured the Holy Spirit into our lives. But it's also objective. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul is saying objectively that you can know beyond all doubt that God loves you. Even if your feelings or your life circumstances are provoking that you might wonder about God's love. Paul is saying, knock it off. This is how you know. While you were still weak, Christ died for you. Because one would scarcely die for a person. You know, I, I would die for Kimmy. I would die for my kids, my grandchildren. I would lay down my life for you. But there's a bunch of people I would really take second thought that I know Especially in my neighborhood. Uh, Lord, you want me to die for them? Jesus did. <laughs> While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we weren't likable. We weren't even fun. But the reality is, he did die for us. So wonder no more, my friends. This assurance is real. And the last point is, verses 9 through 10, actually 9 through 11, you will get there. Verses 9, since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If Jesus was able to save us when we were at war with him, how much, how much will he fail us now that we're at peace with him? He won't. He will keep us. That's what Paul is reminding us. We were enemies. We had his wrath, and he died for us. How much more by his perfect life will be attributed to you and me? That's justification. Clothed in his righteousness. The God who brought us into faith will keep us going in the faith. The God who gave us his faith as a gift will ensure that we arrive at that destination. So, more than that, we are a rejoicing people. Verse 11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now, present tense, received reconciliation. 
Oh, my friends, joy is the great sign of a justified person. Joy is unique because it doesn't depend upon your circumstances. It doesn't depend upon your performance in the faith. You haven't memorized one piece of scripture. Well, if you place your trust in Christ, you're his beloved child. Now, let's get into the word together. Maybe you've memorized the whole book of Romans. Good for you. You're no better than the person who's never memorized any scripture. It's a great joy. Because when you give your heart to anything else other than God, you'll be disappointed. Augustine said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. But what do we do? We run to those idols, the suburban idols of travel sports, the suburban idol of, you know, putting my kids above God, putting my marriage above God, relationships above God putting my yard above God. You know, make sure the, the salt doesn't get on your grass. Right? When, when you live for that, you'll be disappointed by it. Or you'll be so ticked that the world isn't following your directive, you're just going to isolate yourself from all others. But none of those things are bad things, are they? They're not. They're good things. Problem is, we make them ultimate things. That's the definition of an idol. And therefore, we weren't able to enjoy them. But now in Christ, we can enjoy them. And they won't disappoint us. Because my main focus is on following Jesus. And I can rejoice in my justification. So, what benefit is it of our justification? Does anything make you doubt that you will reach this glory? Doesn't verse 11 encourage you? Rejoicing in the trust that you have in Jesus Christ, you've already received, past tense, the reconciliation. This is who he sees you if you believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him. Where are you tempted to seek joy other than this? Really? <laughs> That's Paul's tone. He wants us to get this, my friends. And this is, as applicable, is as, as applicable in 2020 for tomorrow morning as it was in year 60, 57, when he wrote it. My friends in England give a great illustration. I, I learned this, this story from them. It's, it's a true story. There was a little boy who was at a, at a, at a at school in England, and he was incredibly embarrassed by his mother, whose hands and forearms were deeply scarred and deformed. She couldn't write her name or anything, but she was deformed, but she would come every day after school to pick her son up, and he got a little, he, you know, he get to, got to be about 10, he was a little embarrassed by her. And the other kids made fun of her, you know, her disfigurement, and, and he was embarrassed by it, and wish he didn't have to walk with her. And he was telling this to his dad one day. And his dad said, son, do you know where your mom got her deformation? Where she got these steep scars? When you were a little boy, learning how to walk, you could reach up to the stove. 
and on the stove was a pot of scalding hot boiling water. Your mom had left the kitchen and she was coming back in the kitchen. It was, you were pulling it down and it was going to fall on you. She rushed and kneed you out of the way as the pot fell on her and totally gave her third degree burns. She took this scalding hot cast iron pot and grabbed it and threw it into the sink. And we took her to the hospital. Son, I would suggest every time you look at your mom's scars, you see the greatest act of love you will ever see apart from the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reason we have a cross hanging off the ceiling. Whenever we ponder the amazing grace of Jesus Christ upon the cross, my friends, we can know we're loved despite our circumstances. Paul's bringing that home. So we are the most joyful people on the planet. No matter what we're going through. Not rejoicing for our sufferings, but rejoicing in them. Because Christ died for us. So as we sung at the beginning, let us rejoice. Our Lord is King. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you once again for this day and for this wonderful word which Paul gives to us, reminding us that the salvation we have matters for today. It matters because we have a great hope awaiting us and we can rejoice in the present of that hope. We are reconciled. We are your children. We have access. And therefore, we can persevere, endure, and have great hope because of what you've done for us. Lord, make us a rejoicing people because we know you and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.